One more try here. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dave's Dispatch Podcast. I'm David Dennison, and if you're just joining us, a quick reminder about what this podcast is and isn't. What it isn't is a conventional podcast. What it is is just me reading the entries from my newsletter from the past week. My newsletter, if you don't already subscribe, is also called Dave's Dispatch, and it's published on Substack at denisonwrites.substack.com. Subscription is free, and there is loads of free content. So if you are inclined, it would be a big help to me if you would hop on over there and click the subscribe button. This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion as it pertains to the airline industry. We're going to be talking about the war in Gaza and some troubling developments there. And we're going to be talking about the crisis at America's southern border and how it relates to the Republican presidential primary. Thank you again for joining us. The anger over recent comments from prominent conservatives about DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, in the airline industry, has highlighted one of the most troubling and counterproductive impulses of the contemporary left, eschewing important conversations in favor of landing social justice dunks. Charlie Kirk, the conservative founder of Turning Points USA, made the following remark on a recent episode of The Charlie Kirk Show. Quote, if I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he is qualified. A clip of the conversation in which the comment was made went viral online and started a fire of righteous outrage, onto which Candace Owens promptly poured a carafe of gasoline. The offending snippet of Owens' remarks went like this. I would be terrified if I got onto a plane and saw a woman flying the plane. Wow, did they just say the quiet part out loud? Kirk's statement was interpreted by much of the left as his functionally having said, I don't trust black people to fly airplanes, so when I see a black guy in the cockpit, I worry. Owen's remark appeared to be the same, but about women. Here's a smattering of the responses to this blow-up on X. Alex Cole says, Hey guys, please don't let Charlie Kirk see these photos. He doesn't think black people are qualified to be pilots. And he's posted a collage of black women who are airline pilots. Frap Slim says, To be fair to Charlie Kirk, black pilots have a history of killing Nazis. Ouch. And he's got a picture there of the Tuskegee Airmen. D.L. Hughley along the same line says, Charlie Kirk says when he sees a black pilot, he wonders if he's qualified. FYI, the Tuskegee Airmen lost far fewer planes than did their white counterparts. And Will Stansel says, the Trump right plans to bring back Jim Crow norms, and it could happen. They have explicit plans to eliminate the legal rules and standards that prevent discrimination against black people. And they're hard at work stigmatizing all black professionals as dangerous, underqualified. Now, If Kirk and Owens had actually been expressing skepticism over the inherent fitness of black people and women to pilot airplanes, that would be very troubling indeed. It would be racist, it would be sexist, and the fury directed their way would be justified. The trouble is, that is not what Charlie Kirk was saying, and it was not what Candace Owens was saying. And if anyone were bothering to report the words that were said on these shows immediately before and after the words that got cropped out and distributed, that would be very clear. The Charlie Kirk exchange went like this. Kirk said, 
If I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he is qualified. That part was true. But then the other guy said, you wouldn't have done that before. And Kirk said, that's not who I am. That's not what I believe. And another guy said, it is the reality the left has created. Here's Candace Owens in fuller form. But unfortunately, that is the reality of what happens when it comes to DEI. What Kirk is remarking on is true. I would be terrified if I got onto a plane and I saw a woman flying the plane, and I know that we have the United CEO saying that he just wants to fulfill a quota. He just wants there to be more women, and he wants there to be more black people, and he's not concerned at first with qualifications. That is something that should alarm all of us guys, honestly. That's the end of the quote. This kind of crap makes me want to bang my head against something hard until I fall asleep. I did not spend the entirety of the aughts slamming Fox News for deceptive and selective editing practices only to have people on my team start playing that same dirty game. Whatever you think of Kirk, whatever you think of Owens, they are plainly not saying that they think black people and women cannot fly planes. They just aren't. The people claiming this are lying. What both were actually talking about in their respective segments, and it is a valid topic of discussion, was DEI practices, again, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, in the airline industry. I shouldn't have to parse these words because they actually weren't unclear, but apparently the need for lefties to whack at bigot pinatas is just too overpowering. And making the admittedly huge time commitment required to digest a full 30-second clip before flying off the handlebars is too much to ask of the attention spans of our political commentariat. So let's spell this out. What both Kirk and Owens meant, rather obviously to anyone actually listening, was the airline industry's stated commitment to DEI in hiring has raised questions as to whether pilots in targeted identity groups are being held to the same qualification standards as everyone else. And that causes confusion and anxiety when encountering these pilots as to whether they are flying because they're truly safe to do so, or whether the bar might have been lowered for them because the airline wanted to aesthetically diversify the cockpit. Whatever you think of that, whatever you think of DEI, whether you think it's great or important or you think it's terrible and it's dangerous, it was that, DEI, that was the subject of these discussions, not the actual fitness of black or female pilots. And it was DEI, not pilot fitness, that Kirk and Owens were complaining about. The outrage over this is not about poorly chosen words or complicated ideas that don't lend themselves well to short segments. This is about folks on the left preferring to punch a straw man than actually engage on the substance of an issue. And it's about people lying in order to make their political foes look as bad as possible. The moral calculus, to the extent that I understand it, goes something like this. Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens are both bad people. It is therefore okay to bend the truth in the interest of taking them down. Now, we'll have to save for another time how dumb it is to think that two enormously successful and independent media personalities can be taken down by left-wing outrage, 
when left-wing outrage is the thing that made them both famous in the first place? These people brew liberal tears into big money, and they're both really good at it. But I digress. My point is intentional dishonesty is unethical. Implying that somebody said something they didn't say is also unethical, even and especially when you think that what they really meant was the thing that you're lying about. And yes, lying very much includes shaving off words to alter meaning. I can't believe we're having to talk about this, but since we are, here's an example. If I say, it is wrong to punch people on the subway, and you snip out my first four words, my statement becomes, punch people on the subway. Now, did I technically say, punch people on the subway? Did I say those words? Yeah. Is that what I meant? No. And it's wrong for you to frame my words to imply otherwise. But what about the substance of all of this? Do Kirk and Owens have a point about DEI in the airline industry? Or is this just a right-wing boogeyman? As far as I can tell, the panic over Sky DEI went into full steam a few years ago when the New York Times printed a piece about airlines prioritizing workforce diversification as a step toward mitigating a pilot shortage. The article caused some jitters among air travelers who can probably be forgiven for caring less about the skin pigmentation of the people who fly their planes and more about whether they can actually fly their planes. This would be a good time to note something important. Nowhere in the NYT piece is it claimed or even suggested that any airline is actually lowering safety standards in order to meet racial quotas. Even in a long piece from a few weeks ago by right-wing firebrand Matt Walsh, there's a lot of suggestion, a lot of innuendo and implication, and a lot of raising questions, but no actual proof that DEI initiatives have negatively affected airline safety. We'll return to Walsh and his story later, but it's worth pointing out right now that he only identifies one example of a black pilot causing a crash. And while it sounds like the guy had kind of a dodgy track record, Walsh offers no concrete evidence that the man was put or kept in his job because of DEI. It isn't unfair to raise questions about this, though. The most common arena in which we discuss DEI and affirmative action initiatives is probably college admissions. And in that sphere, it is absolutely the case that standards are lowered for desired groups and raised for groups that colleges aren't trying to attract, like Asians. The Supreme Court just attempted to ban this practice, but that's only spurred colleges and applicants to look for creative workarounds. The point is, some DEI projects do operate by lowering standards for targeted groups. Asking whether a high-stakes industry like airlines is engaging in those practices is perfectly reasonable. And neither the airlines themselves nor left-wing proponents of DEI should fear these questions, because the answer would appear to be no, they're not compromising standards. What it looks like they are doing is being more proactive about recruiting candidates from historically black colleges and offering scholarships to help disadvantaged students pay for flight school. As a very nervous air traveler, I'm fine with all of that. But, and this is an important but, if Kirk, Owens, Walsh, et al. are onto something, and if it should be revealed that in fact airlines are setting different standards for different identity groups, then I am 200% hair on fire, scream it from the rooftops, not okay with that. 
Actually, and I think this is why the issue has caught on, the very idea of that is so horrifying to me that I hope Congress holds hearings. I really do. I will tolerate any amount of showboating and demagoguery from Republicans who just want to grandstand over DEI if it means that I can be reassured that performative corporate wokeness isn't going to send me plummeting into the ocean at 500 miles per hour. Nobody who has ever felt their stomach hit their throat during a bout of turbulence should be confused about why this question resonates, indeed haunts. But just in case, let's use an example that takes race and gender out of the equation. Imagine that United Airlines announced that they really wanted to hire more guys named Pete. Not enough Pete's in United cockpits. And further imagine that United intended to meet their Pete quota by making it easier for guys named Pete to become pilots. Pete's would now require fewer simulator hours, less time in the air, and a wider berth for mistakes than guys like Dan, Bob, or Steve. So then imagine that you knew all this, and you were boarding a United flight, and the pilot was standing there with the flight attendants ready to greet you, and you caught a glimpse of his name tag, and it read, Pete. Now are you really telling me, given what you know, and in spite of your righteous commitment to Pete advancement, that a small part of you isn't going to go, boy, I hope he's qualified? This is what makes air travel, such a fundamentally different conversation to something like college admissions. An Asian applicant missing out on Harvard because Harvard gave the spot away to a less qualified candidate from a more desirable racial group may be unfair. What it is not is life or death. But prioritizing skin color over fitness in an enterprise that is life or death, like air travel, is actually insane. It's like really wanting your heart surgeon to be a Pisces. Demanding reassurance that this is not happening in the airlines is understandable and a good idea. I'm willing to be pretty ruthless on this one. I don't care if it's been your lifelong dream. I don't care if you're from an underrepresented group. I don't care what structural factors led to your questionable suitability. It's not like you're brewing me a cappuccino. Either you are qualified and competent to fly me through the air or you aren't. And if you aren't, you can't do it. In air travel, it is not important to me that Rudy be able to play in the last game of the season. I hate it when lefties cry racism or sexism when there is no racism or sexism, but that isn't the real problem with this episode. The real problem is that the non-troversy over Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens's supposed bigotry is a, allowing the left to dodge an important conversation over the merits of DEI, and B, distracting the left from an even more important conversation over airline safety. Now first, on DEI, hey, maybe there's a good reason to value this in air travel. Maybe it'll actually raise standards. The reason there weren't a lot of female cardiologists in 1950 wasn't because women 70 years ago were incapable of doing cardiology. It was because people thought they were. And a downstream effect of that prejudice was that men in cardiology faced lighter competition and thus lower standards. That's a bad thing, especially if you care about matters like whether or not your heart works. 
Now, maybe the same thing is true in the airline industry. Maybe there's a quiet bigotry that's keeping pilots of color and women out of the cockpit. And maybe that's leaving us stuck with mediocre white men who wouldn't be able to hack it in a more competitive ecosystem. If that's the case, I not only want to know about it, I want to fix it. Pronto. So let's talk about it, rather than just name-call and throw mud. Guys, liberals, this is your issue. The right doesn't care about DEI. You do. So explain its merits. Defend it. If you don't, they're going to think you can't, and their narrative is going to win the day. Next, on air travel itself, there's a remarkable passage in the Matt Walsh piece I talked about. Walsh is discussing the recent scare aboard an Alaska Airlines flight over Portland, where one of the doors to the 737 MAX 9 blew off in mid-flight. The door was manufactured by a company called Spirit Aero Systems, and Walsh goes into some detail about that company's shoddy safety record. And of course, the 737 MAX was that Boeing model that famously crashed in Indonesia in 2018, then again in Ethiopia a year later. Walsh blames the Alaska Airlines incident not on corporate malfeasance or poor industry regulation, but on DEI. His basis? They have a DEI statement on their website. Very quickly, DEI statements on websites are incredibly common. They're all the rage. Of course they are. It doesn't cost companies anything to put them there, and it does pacify gullible wokesters. But Walsh's piece goes to show that it is not only progressives who can become unhelpfully mesmerized by culture war fodder. And what he is glossing over is extremely important and extremely frightening. In the shocking Netflix documentary, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, the events that led to the crashes of Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 are laid out in excruciating, infuriating detail. Here's the Reader's Digest version. The 737 MAX was built with a more powerful engine than the prior model, but the engine's large size meant that the plane behaved differently during certain maneuvers. Rather than alter the design, Boeing installed the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS. The idea was, if the plane started to tilt wrongly, MCAS would take over and stabilize it. And as long as pilots knew what to do in those situations, there was no safety issue. The problem was that this was a new feature, and a significant one. Any system that can assume control over the aircraft is pretty significant and pilots weren't trained on how to respond when it triggered. Why? Because pilot retraining is expensive. It was cheaper for Boeing to package MCAS as a minor tweak rather than admit that it was a system with which pilots really needed to practice. And the truly disgusting part of this, even after Boeing knew that MCAS was implicated in the Lion Air crash, they didn't say anything. It was only after the second crash that they were forced to own up. The 189 people who died aboard Lion Air Flight 610 were the victims of corporate greed. The 157 people who died a year later when Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 went down were the victims of negligent homicide committed by Boeing, the second largest recipient 
of U.S. government contracting cash. If the left isn't going to dig in and care about this, who is? I don't really expect Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, or Matt Walsh to launch a crusade for better government regulation of the airlines. That's not their thing. I expect us to do that. And we're not, because it is both easier and more fun to call people racist and then call it a day. I hate flying. I hate it. It doesn't even seem real. You're telling me that this 200-ton scrap of metal can fly through the sky because of something to do with, like, pressure under the wing? No. And I can eat pretzels and watch Captain America while this is happening? BS. Not real. We're living in the sim. The point is, air travel terrifies me. So any suggestion, let me try that again, any suggestion that airlines are doing anything less than everything to make the process as safe as possible is disturbing. We all have a stake in this, even those of us who don't fly, because when planes drop out of the air, they can sometimes hit things on the ground. So to my liberal friends, let's address the valid questions conservatives are raising about DEI. Then let's work to make sure flying is as safe as we can make it. These tired, transparently dishonest call-outs over supposed racism and sexism are just not a step in that process and will not improve anything for anyone. Okay, during our short break here, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, If you have been listening to this podcast, you have probably noticed that the audio quality of the first few episodes was garbage, to put it lightly. Uh, I have been trying to educate myself and trying to practice getting better audio. I also got a new microphone. If you're listening to this and thinking, hey, Dave, that sounds way, way, way better than it did last week, do me a favor and let me know that. Um, I really do kind of need feedback to know if, uh, if this is something that people are enjoying listening to or if it just sounds so tinny and cave-like and horrible that it, it is intolerable, uh, which I completely understand because I wouldn't like listening to a podcast that had unprofessional audio either. Um, so let me know. Next up, we are going to be moving on to the war in Gaza and a disturbing recent development in that area. A few days ago, I hit an interesting milestone in my journey, or my slog, as an independent writer. I responded to a tweet on X about a recent development in the Gaza war, and it blew up a little. It was nothing major, but for a guy who's still struggling to crack 60, 65 followers, it got significant engagement. Oh, and because it's me, naturally, it has a typo in it. Here's what I wrote. It's amazing to me that more people aren't seeing through this. 12 people out of 13,000 were accused and all major funding gone. To the biggest humanitarian agency in the Strip during its worst ever humanitarian crisis. And here's the tweet to which I was responding from the excellent journalist Ryan Grimm at The Intercept. The recent like history of the Wall Street Journal reporter who laundered an unverified Israeli intel dossier on the UN Refugee Agency has her liking posts mocking Palestinian civilian deaths. Also, a former IDF soldier. Imagine being Palestinian and trying to get a fair hearing in the Western press. 
Since the topic was evidently interesting enough that my typo-riddled response to that has been viewed by like 20,000 people at the time of this writing, and for the record, I should have put a me in my response, I did not misspell the word to. I thought I'd elaborate on what was actually being discussed here in the newsletter and here on the podcast. At issue are recent allegations from Israeli intelligence that about a dozen employees of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA, participated in Hamas's deadly terror attack against Israel on October 7th. The allegations, which for now remain just that, allegations, are extremely grave. Israel is saying that some of these people may actually have participated directly in the kidnapping of Israeli civilians. The UNRWA, for its part, is taking this very seriously. They promptly fired the employees in question and have vowed to investigate the charges. But the impact of all of this is likely to be highly consequential for the region and for the war. And to understand why and what this means for Gaza and for Israel, it's important first to understand what UNRWA is and what role it plays in the Palestinian territories. The first two letters of that acronym are key. UNRWA is part of the UN, or the United Nations. That is to say, it is funded by governments from all over the world, including and especially the government of the United States of America. As a result of these allegations, the U.S., along with about 10 other wealthy nations at the time I'm recording this, has suspended all funding to the agency. That isn't just bad for UNRWA, it is very possibly crippling. And UNRWA isn't just a humanitarian aid agency. In Gaza, it is the humanitarian aid agency. It's by far the biggest and the farthest reaching, and it is presently servicing the worst humanitarian crisis the Gaza Strip has ever experienced. UNRWA is also a significant feature in Gaza's economic landscape. Unemployment in the Strip is at catastrophic levels. Even before October 7th, it was very nearly 50%, and of the 50% of Gaza that was employed, 55% of those jobs were in the public sector. Gaza has some agriculture, and it has a handful of small industries, but due primarily to Israel's blockade, its economic output is minimal. As to those public sector jobs, the biggest employer in Gaza, by a long shot, is Hamas. More on this point later. But the second biggest employer? UNRWA. This matters for two reasons. The first is that disaster economies are incredibly fragile. The very last thing they need is a massive spike in unemployment, and that will surely follow this defunding. But the other reason this matters has to do with the accusations themselves. Now, if the allegations are true, and while unproven, it is not implausible that they are, what do they mean? What do they say about UNRWA itself? Twelve, maybe thirteen, members of this group have been accused as terrorists. That's out of 13,000 employees on the ground in Gaza alone, and something like 30,000 overall. Israel has implicated a minuscule fraction of a massive outfit. Let me try that again. A minuscule fraction of a massive outfit in crimes against its security. 
but it's not clear what, if anything, that says about the organization itself beyond the fact that even terrorists need day jobs. Though this has not stopped many Israelis and other supporters of the Jewish state from saying quite a bit about UNRWA. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accused the agency of teaching the doctrines of extermination and also of being perforated with Hamas. Of course, antagonism toward UNRWA is not new in Israel, nor is antagonism toward the broader UN. As an American, it can be easy to forget just how few friends Israel really has on the world stage. It is often the case, though, that the only thing keeping the United Nations from coming down on Israel like the proverbial ton of bricks is the endlessly reusable veto possessed by the United States through its permanent membership to the UN Security Council. It is not wrong to say that the UN as a whole is biased against Israeli aggression. And so having a UN-operated aid agency working in their backyard and, in Israel's view, helping to gin up contempt for them is not a new thorn in their side. Now, that could mean that these allegations against UNRWA's employees are cynically motivated or even false. The reason I am stopping short of condemning them as outright lies is because, again, 13,000 people work for UNRWA in Gaza. Most of them are Palestinians, and most Palestinians do not harbor especially warm feelings for the Jewish state. Could a dozen militants have infiltrated an aid agency? Maybe to get easy access to travel around the Strip, maybe to connect with a steady stream of disaffected recruitment targets, or maybe just to pay the bills. Sure, that may not even be far-fetched, but does it say much about the agency itself? Does it imply that UNRWA is corrupt or terroristic in any meaningful sense, let alone to its core? That is not a standard we apply in other like situations. Timothy McVeigh worked at a lumberyard and probably represented more than 0.001% of its staff. Was the lumberyard implicated in the Oklahoma City bombing? The Fort Hood and the Washington Navy Yard shooters were both in the military. Did we indict the military for their crimes? These are flawed comparisons, if I'm being honest. And in full fairness, UNRWA is not completely neutral and they are not always passive in their criticism of the Israeli government. Indeed, it is probably a safe bet that more of its staff are affiliated with Hamas than just the 12 accused. Although here we have to be very careful. Hamas may be the largest employer in the Gaza Strip, but that does not mean that most working Gazans are engaged in the military struggle against Israel. Far from it. Hamas, well, yes, a terrorist organization that is entirely deserving of that designation, is also a political party. It's also a municipal government, and at times it has to function as a national government. In the West, thank God, we do not have political parties that operate that way or that have their own armies. San Francisco is a famously blue city, but the Democratic Party is not responsible for maintaining the parks funding the schools, or policing the streets. The Republican Party does not have its own militia, nor can it set foreign policy independent of the United States. 
Hamas is a different beast entirely, and we must thus be very measured in how we use language when discussing them. A quote-unquote member of Hamas might be a kidnapper or a rocket technician, or he might be a sewer worker or the guy who paints road signs. We will presumably learn more about the dozen accused at UNRWA in time, and Israel is now expanding their allegations to implicate many more of the agency's staff, but weirdly, they're also sort of walking back the initial claim, so in a lot of ways, it's very hard to know what is being alleged. But if it is ultimately discovered that UNRWA really is channeling aid money to support military engagement, then that is truly damning, and a good reason for world governments to consider yanking their funds. But it is far from clear that that's the case. What is clear is that right now, on the ground in Gaza, UNRWA is keeping an untold number of people alive. If they stop being able to do that, an untold number of people will die. Hardliners in Israel have become increasingly vocal about their wish to see the Gaza Strip emptied of its Palestinian population. It is not conspiratorial to wonder how many in Israeli leadership might be viewing the possible disintegration of UNRWA as a chance to facilitate exactly that outcome. And it is not unreasonable, as Americans, to ask whether we are being used to nudge that process along, particularly when our government slashes funding to a prominent aid organization on the say-so of people who have a clear ulterior motive in targeting it. Okay, one last break before we wrap up with our last segment. If you've liked what you heard, please do consider going over to Substack to the Dave's Dispatch newsletter and subscribing. It is free if you want it to be. It takes almost no time. Uh, And if you've been enjoying this content, I can promise you quite a bit more of it to come. Our last segment, which is considerably lighter in tone, is about the Republican primary. It's about Nikki Haley, and it's about what's happening at the southern border. Here we go. The most disappointing thing about having Donald Trump in yet another presidential election is that I am just tired of the man. I'm tired of thinking about him. I'm tired of writing about him. I'm tired of having to care what he says and does. So today I thought I would take a partial break from the orange man and remind readers that the other candidate in the race for the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley, is also terrible. Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and ambassador to the UN, has been trying to walk a fantastically awkward line in trying to simultaneously take down Donald Trump while also kissing up to his supporters. It's a hard job, and I don't envy her. She has to somehow convince Republican voters who still mostly like the guy that Donald Trump is uniquely bad and awful, but that they are good and wonderful in spite of their love for him. And if polls are any indication, her efforts are not succeeding. Trump is beating her two to one in South Carolina, which is her home state. As the Donald might say, sad. Haley's most recent humiliation came on the radio program The Breakfast Club, whereon she was asked about mounting calls from anti-immigrant diehards in Texas 
for the Lone Star State to declare independence and secede from the Union. Haley, a member of the party of Lincoln, that cannot be stressed enough, responded, if Texas decides they want to do that, they can do that. Authors note, they cannot, in fact, do that. She then said, if the whole state says we don't want to be part of America anymore, that's their decision to make. Another author's note, it is not their decision to make. And in what was perhaps an attempt at mitigating her ridiculous comments, she followed all of this with, let's talk about what's reality. Texas isn't going to secede. And on this point, she is correct. Texas is not going to secede. If you haven't been following the story, here's what led up to all of this. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has spent the last several weeks stoking a phony controversy with the U.S. government over the migrant crisis at the southern border. Abbott would like Texas to take immigration enforcement into its own hands so that they can deal with the problem in their own way. Now, what does that mean? In some cases, it means some pretty unpleasant things. Texas authorities have placed razor wire and lacerating buoys at several crossing points along the Rio Grande. Critics predicted that these defenses could prove lethal to migrants attempting to cross the river, and indeed, they seem to have. Now, if you are saying to yourself, hey, they shouldn't have done the crime if they didn't want to suffer the consequences, that's repellent. However strongly you feel about illegal immigration, the punishment for attempting to cross our border without papers should not be death. Anyway, CBP sometimes needs to cut through the installed wire, and it is that practice that Greg Abbott wants the state authorities under his control to prevent. Abbott in this is styling himself as a champion of states' rights, bravely taking a stand against feckless federal authority. He and others have called the migrant crisis an invasion and have attempted to use that hyperbole to suggest that the federal government is neglecting its duties under the Constitution. Now, the Constitution does indeed mandate that the federal government offer protection from invasion, but what's happening in Texas and the other border states is fairly obviously not what the framers intended by that term. Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, a Democrat who sits on the House Judiciary Committee, put it this way. This is a quote, The fringe legal fantasy being pushed in this hearing and by some state officials hinges on a tortured reading of the Constitution that defines both constitutional history and legal precedent. I'm sorry, that defies both constitutional history and legal precedent. Our founders and credible legal scholars are clear that the Invasion Clause refers to protection against armed hostility from a nation-state or organized political entity. It is not people fleeing danger in their home country and seeking protection under U.S. and international asylum laws. End of quote. Essentially, wingnuts in Texas are being drama queens, and then they're using their drama queenery to claim that the Constitution protects them. This would be like me saying that my wife making me do the dishes is cruel and unusual punishment, then taking her to federal court for violating the Eighth Amendment. In reality, most of this is a dog and pony show to fire up the Republican base. There is a legal dimension. Abbott and his cohorts are trying to bait the Supreme Court into ending federal authority over immigration policy and letting the states set their own rules. 
But the actual confrontation, such as it is between Abbott and the feds, is pretty meager. There's a park in a border town called Eagles Pass, and apparently this town's claim to fame is that it was featured in the film No Country for Old Men. And officials from Customs and Border Protection like to use the boat ramp in the park to access the river. Texas authorities have made a stand in the park and barred CBP from entering, hoping that they will file a lawsuit that could end up before the Supreme Court. That, for now, is really the extent of the standoff. Fort Sumter, this is not. In fact, in a funny twist, citizens of Eagles Pass don't want the state cops messing around in their park. The city council has actually voted to void the agreement that allows them to use it. This thing is like a Russian doll. The state doesn't want the feds involved. The locals don't want the state involved. Everyone down the line is annoying everyone else. On a serious note, the migrant crisis that Greg Abbott is exploiting is plenty real. Border crossings have hit record numbers, federal resources are overstretched, and even places farther afield are starting to feel the strain as Texas and other border states bus migrants out of their backyards and into the Great Blue North. Two very quick points on this. The busing thing is performative, it's cynical, and it is in some cases cruel, dropping desperate people off in places where they cannot be taken care of or places that are dangerously cold is barbaric. But that said, I actually don't have a problem with the policy itself, with the idea that other states should pick up some of the burden of this. As a nation, we can't have it both ways. If we don't want states to be able to set their own immigration policy, we can't expect a small handful of those states to shoulder the entire burden of undocumented migration. If it's an American problem, and it is, it should have an American solution. And it's fair enough that New York and Michigan and Illinois and the rest help play a part in that. But back to Nikki Haley, sucking up to the idiots pretending they're going to leave the union because of this is not only wrong, it's just pathetic. And this kind of thing is emblematic of her entire candidacy. Haley wants to style herself as the serious alternative to Donald Trump. But in order to do that, she has to pander to people who like Donald Trump precisely because of his unseriousness. I am most certainly not a Republican voter, but if I were, I just can't imagine that this lame, weedy, I'll be whatever you want me to be, campaigning style would appeal to me. One of the things voters like about Trump, probably the biggest thing voters like about Trump, is that he doesn't play those games. He doesn't waffle, he doesn't pander, and he never gives the appearance that he is checking the water temperature before diving in. I don't like the guy, but there is actually something admirable in that. More to the point, there is something refreshing. Yes, Nikki Haley is the normal candidate. She's the normal politician. But since voters, especially Republican ones, hate politicians, that isn't winning her any favor. My feeling on Haley is that if she were ever really going to pop as a presidential threat, it would have happened by now. She's not new on the scene, she's not fresh, and as this episode has demonstrated, she lacks the ability to use the news cycle as a springboard for making herself look tough and interesting. Trump, by the way, is very good at that. He'll take the issue of the day, say something completely wild about it, 
and roll it into two days of coverage about him. I don't know if Haley was trying to do that here and failed, or if she just went porcupine in headlights with the secession thing, but her biffing on that question made her look both dumb and weak. And since the supposed justification for her sticking around in this race against all odds is that, unlike Trump, she is competent and strong, this was not a good day for Nikki Haley. Okay, that's our show. I hope you liked it. One more time, if you did, or even if you didn't but you want to do me a solid, please consider going to Substack to the Dave's Dispatch page, which can either be Googled or can be found at denisonwrites.substack.com and throw me a free subscribe. It will not take much of your time. It will be a big boost to yours truly. Thank you so much for listening. I'm David Dennison. May the force be with you.